much of this is a secular reinvention of a grieving ritual and how much belongs to Judaism, Judaic traditions. You know, I didn't consciously set out to model this after any type of Jewish ritual. People have pointed out that it bears some resemblance, mainly with the um, presence of a scroll, and also there is a tradition called Yisker on Yom Kippur in which Jews will recite the names of the dead. So those things are similar, but nothing else about it is distinctly Jewish, and, and I maintain that it is a secular, non-denominational event that makes no mention of God or afterlife whatsoever. Um, and I've very deliberately devised it to be that way so that people can superimpose their own traditions and cultures onto it, and so that no traditions or cultures are left feeling... Um, excluded. I am Jewish. I am the composer in residence at a synagogue. I am the descendants of Holocaust survivors. I am a product of my of my roots, like everybody is, and I'm, I'm proud of where I come from. So obviously on some level this is going to influence who I am as an artist. But grief is not a Jewish event by any means. So you, you, uh, you talk about the people that you've lost in the last few years. How have you been coping? I've been coping by making art. Um, but, you know, one copes very differently at different phases of the grieving process. And grief is quite unique to the person being grieved and the person who is grieving the dead. So the way I grieve the death of my father is very different than the way that I grieve the death of my therapist, it's very different than the way I grieve the death of my grandmother, it's very different than the way I grieve the death of a friend. It's These relationship dynamics are complex and they change and we are attached to people in very unique ways. But you know, cope is like, I'm not a big fan of this word to cope, because to cope means to bear it. It means to just survive in the unpleasantness. But implicit in this idea of coping is this idea that the emotion and the experience is not worthwhile. And to suffer and grieve and to feel the pain of loss is important. We shouldn't cope, we should feel, even if that's absolutely terrifying and profoundly painful and difficult. That's how I see it. Yeah, maybe the question is, how do you function? Because you, you, one of your parents is alive, right? Yes, my and mother's still alive. Well, my mom died uh, about five years ago. I don't think anything's ever the same once you're without parents, especially without them. Like it's just both your parents passed, or just one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both. With her, both. So it's, it's just nothing is ever the same, and it's not a matter of coping. It's just a different stage of your life. Yes. It's a different stage of your life. And, and you are forever wounded and forever steeled in a way, if you're lucky. Well, why should you be forever wounded? You lost this permanent gaze over your life that kind of gave it a certain gelling, that it was concerned with you. It was a concerned gaze. I mean, and for an atheist, it's an interesting problem because I don't expect any other parent. Um, or a benevolent gaze, right? 
But to say that it's lost, I mean, first of all, you knew you were going to lose it. You knew from the you know, moment we don't you were want, a child. We don't really. See, I don't think we really understand that well, until that's a it happens. Thing. And, but we also do deeply understand it. Whether or not we want to accept it is a different issue. We know our parents are going to die. Most children can relate to an experience of having a fantasy. Superficially. What would I do of course, superficially. But, you know, to quote Cat Stevens, you're still young. That's your fault. You knew your parents were going to die from day one. And what I'd like to do with this project is let people know, and not in a grim or perverse way, your parents are going to die. A hundred percent. You are going to die. Know that. And with that information, dedicate your life to living and encourage others to do the same. It should not come as a surprise that people die. The way people die, of course, can cause an incredible amount of confusion and difficulty. But... It's going to happen. Look alive. Be ready for it. So were you close to your dad? Oh, of course. Of course. How old was he when he died? He was, uh, what was he? It's just shy of 70, maybe something like 68 or so. Not old. Not old at all. In weird ways, I feel closer to him even now. I feel closer now that he's dead in, in strange ways. And um, the ways that he's parented me reveal themselves. So things that he did that really irritated me or frustrated, now I go, wow, that was genius. I'm really grateful that he did these things. And also these subtle ways that he didn't even probably consciously know he was parenting, but just modeling. Like, um, you know, there's always classical music on the radio. And um, comedians were revered. There's no instruction of you should be a comedian or you should be a composer. Or, not that I'm a comedian, but you understand what I'm saying. But it was like there was a reverence that was just built in, that these were people to respect and admire, that these were people to model your life after, and that it was positive to be funny. It was positive to take art and culture seriously. He never said those things, but I see now how ingrained in his teaching all that was. So... You know, you learn a lot from your parents even after they're gone. And if I might argue also that parenting is, an, in addition to an active living document, it's also an imprint. Like your parents leave you with parenting so that you have the tools to do it for yourself after they go. That's kind of part of the gig. You don't have children, do you? I don't have children. Do you ever think, oh, I should have fixed it, I should have worked on that? I have some regrets, but my regrets are all from my years as a snot-nosed, ungrateful teenager. And so sometimes I get sick to my stomach with like some things that I did. Same. But then I also look at you know my teenage nephew and I go, that's teenagers. Mm -hmm. Like you got to have some forgiveness for yourself for being a piece of crap when you're 15 years old like that's just that's also part of the gig so the, i mean there's there's no resurrection in judaism is that right there's no promise of it there's no trading with it as christianity does well there is an afterlife you know there is some notion of heaven there's also the post messianic era in which we supposedly return to the Garden of Eden. 
Um, I do think there are some... But no return of this flesh. No. No. So what's the... What's, what's the comfort in the face of death? What says, this is not it, there's going to be something better? How, how are the injustices to be addressed? My perspective is bad things happen. They just do. They don't necessarily get resolved. My grandmother, who just died a month or two ago at the age of 91, was the classiest death I've ever seen in my life. She had no cancer, she had no infection, she didn't seem to be in any real pain. She just withered away the way that a flower does when the snow piles up around it. And her final words were, I love you. My father, you know, had heart attacks and cancer and strokes and he couldn't move his legs. It, like, some of it, of course, is lifestyle. Some of it is outlook on life. Some of it is hereditary. And some of it is just unjust, arbitrarily unjust, isn't it? That some people suffer so much more than some other people. But, you know, implicit in this insistence that it's unjust is an idea that order exists in the universe and that some entity mediates things. And that may be the case, that may not be the case. Like, my belief in that kind of metaphysicality is very fluid. I call upon it when it's meaningful to me, but it's metaphor for me. I don't know if I always believe that things happen for a reason. I will absolutely not. Yeah. yeah, I do sometimes. I live my life as if things do happen for a reason. But I don't actually believe that they do, if that contradiction makes sense. Would you consider yourself religious? Complicated question. Some, I mean, I pray, and, you know, I share a space with a rabbi, so we're typically the only two people that occupy this synagogue, and he's a dear friend of mine. He's religion is in some ways very different than mine, in other ways not different. If he asks me to pray with him, I do, because I think it's a positive experience. Um, and I employ the metaphor of God so that I can have a subject to which, to, to which I can say the things in my heart and on my mind. It's useful in the same way that one exercises their demons through poetry or literature. I can use God for the same literary purposes. It creates form for otherwise vast abstractions. And it's a useful resource. And it's a resource that has withheld the test of time for thousands upon thousands of years. It functions. Is it true in a capital T sense? Probably not, but that's not necessarily important to me. The functionality of God as a metaphor is very useful, and the community that religion can provide for people is comforting. And this idea of belonging to traditions 
that have existed for thousands and thousands of years, I think, in a ritualistic sense, creates an incredible amount of emotional stability because it makes you feel connected to a longer lineage of people. It doesn't make you feel so alien. Do I think most people who congregate in most synagogues, churches, and mosques feel the same way as me? No. When I speak to people, most people think that this idea is a little bit far out. But atheists find it very comforting and refreshing. So, am I religious? No. But religion is important to me. It has a lot of value. And I don't think that secular atheistic society is more sustainable or functioning than God-fearing religious society. I think both are deeply problematic in their own ways, and neither seems to get it perfect. So the best we can possibly do is just constantly walk the line between the two and pick and choose where it's necessary and appropriate. I don't think we've seen a thoroughly secular society, but that's that's another conversation because even uh, communist societies reestablish forms of religious rituals and uh, confessions of sins and that kind of stuff redemptions and yeah I agree with you in the strictest sense of the term but we have um, we have vestiges of religious society existing in a secular society that hasn't gotten rid of it it's not staunchly atheistic or staunchly secular but People are certainly attempting to exist in that way. And I don't blame them. Religion has committed some unforgivable atrocities. Well, I was going to jump in when you said there, there's no harm in, in believing in God. Well, there has been in Christian and Muslim history, most of it, actually. Well, but I didn't you, say there's you, no you harm in believing in it. I just said it's a useful tool. But, you know, I think about, one thing I think about a lot is you can weaponize anything. Anything. If I give you a hammer and say, put this picture frame up, you could just as easily smash a hole in the wall and break the picture. If I give you a brick, you can shelter the homeless or you can throw a brick at someone's face. And the same is true of ideologies and ideas. You can weaponize everything. And it's really up to people to, to exercise free will and make good decisions that best reflect the health and safety of themselves and others. So, yeah, people have weaponized God, no doubt about it. I was interested in what you said about praying. Um, Iris Murdoch has similar things to say. She didn't believe in a personal God, but she said prayer is very useful because it focuses the mind in a way that very few things in contemporary life do. And uh, also, I'll remind you that your own ego is not the most important thing in the story. Yep, I would agree. So tell me, what does it involve to be a, a musician in residence at, uh, here? Well, my official title is the composer in residence. Composer. Yeah, just because I think it sounds fancier than some ordinary musician. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know, I'm still trying to figure that out, and I think the synagogue's also trying to still figure that out. But, but it's great that they have this program. It's wonderful that they have the program. They've given me a lot of space to make music, compose music, rehearse music, and live stream music. You know, it's a way for the synagogue to champion a young artist and to give voice to new Jewish generations of artists, and also to acknowledge that, although once upon a time, Kensington Market was 
know a jewish place it has been replaced with something of a countercultural bohemian face in the in the passing decades yeah, yeah. yeah and it's kind of a way of of uh, fusing the old and new so you know the because it's not as if i'm making particularly mainstream art you know so for an orthodox synagogue to create space for uh, for lack of a better word an alternative artist it's um it's an interesting balancing act between old and new between orthodoxy and radicalism between old ideas and new ideas and it's a way of um being in dialogue what are you using any musical traditions what what's your school of composing you know it's 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 dirge like but not by design just by observation it has a modern sound it's a bit heavy it's a bit grueling it's terribly monotonous and repetitive and ceaseless i'm very curious to know what the experience will be like on both artists and listeners after nine and a half ten hours of the same melody and rhythm it's hard to say like what that feels like on the brain you know like if i say to you say the word blender 50 times at a certain point you, like your brain just stops comprehending what it means i wonder far more meaningful is it also bodily endurance performance huge bodily endurance with the exception of the pianist everybody is standing and everybody is standing stationary one of the reasons is because i want to create a kind of sense of art installation using bodies as a material but another is for practical reasons being that we need to keep people apart for social distancing purposes so people have a little square on the ground and they're stuck there for the entire night hips and knees and backs are going to get sore the the ASL performers hands are going to get tired we're all just going to get tired or maybe not maybe we'll be energized by the experience maybe some new resource inside all of us will will reveal itself sounds like marina abramovich yeah you know it's hard to not take inspiration from her in any sort of durational performance work and the ensemble by design has been built of um vocalists actors dancers performance artists mainly because i felt that every discipline would come with its own training and have something new and interesting to bring to it so it is a musical ensemble that's made up not entirely of musicians yeah the, the musicians themselves the pianists and percussionists are are dominantly musicians in their arts practices but the vocalists vary this question of influence is always an interesting one because no one really believes you you know like someone will say oh you sound they used to say I sound like uh, what's his name from the talking heads oh well, okay i guess sure. but i never listened to the talk- yeah gabriel bird yeah but everyone said well, you must be a huge talking heads or you must be a huge system of a down fan said, like you know i'm aware that they exist but maybe just through some strange unconscious way i've adopted this inspiration but then i list my inspirations and people don't hear them you know like bugs bunny is one of my biggest musical influences how come 
it's it's just the swagger and the attitude and the defiance and the annoyance and the, the cool. and the coolness <laughs> and the dedication to never being bothered and uh, just the wit. Cartoon theme songs like the theme song from Ren and Stimpy, or you know the whole soundtrack from the original Johnny Quest cartoons. That stuff's amazing. <laughs> that stuff is so good. And it sounds like nothing when you hear it. It's like I just want—I want everything I do to sound like that. It doesn't sound like that. So like people don't believe you when you tell them what your influences are. When people say influences, what they mean is uh, things that you sound like. Yeah, it's true. But not things that you attempted to sound like. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, I mean th that that era of uh, incredibly sophisticated musically uh, cartoons have have taught has has taught us to appreciate classical music. A lot of us. I mean, we've heard Valkyries from uh, from cartoons for the first time, probably. Yep. I remember, uh, you know, listening to classical FM with my father in the car. My father loved to drive. Like, you could say, do you want to drive to Buffalo? And if he had nothing to do, yeah, let's go to Buffalo. Good. I know a coffee place there that's really good. Like, loved to drive. And I remember the Barber of Seville came on the radio. And I was like, hey, this is from Bugs Bunny. <laughs> he just kind of <laughs> laughed. It's like, you know, but I remember that moment. 